You're listening to the Grace Reformed Church Podcast. This is a special sermon for Father's Day from Psalm 112. So Psalm 112 is a psalm we're looking at today in the context of it being Father's Day. And um, as we've just heard Alex read it, it's a psalm that speaks of blessing. Uh, The man who is blessed and the marks of such a man and the, the things that such a man can expect. So um, if you follow with me in your Bibles and you can maybe make some marks, that'll be helpful uh, as we look at Psalm 112 together. And may God bless the preaching of His Word. Excuse me. So Psalm 112 shows us what a blessed man looks like. You could say what a blessed family tree looks like. And this word Blessed. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed that it's in our circles, our Christian circles, you know, the, the church circles. That's a word that we use quite a lot. God bless you for your birthday. Uh, you know, if someone sneezes, you might say, God bless you. Uh, at the end of the service, we speak the blessing over people. And, and we, we might say when something good happens to us that I'm so blessed by God. We use it a lot. In the world out there, it's not that much used. Uh, except maybe God bless you when people sneeze. But they don't generally use that word it's because it's a spiritual word. And everyone kind of knows that blessing speaks of when um, you know, God supernaturally gives favor on our life. People might, might rather speak in, out there of being lucky uh, or fortunate. But we speak of the blessing of God. And, um, oh, I need my little... Uh, it's, ooh, are you, can I point you? You're going to change for me. Thank you. All right. Um, I click a thingy. I just, you know, like you feel like you, uh, something's missing from my life, and it's that. <laughs> but um, all right. So the idea is that we are blessed. This is what the psalm speaks about, and um, blessing in the sense of God's favor on our life. And in the scripture, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, is full of the use of that word, God blessing us, God prospering us, God being with us, God being for us. If you think even of Jesus, the Matthew 5, when he starts his ministry, the first sermon of Jesus recorded is the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are uh, uh, in a persecutor. Blessed are the humble, the meek, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. So it's a word that Scripture holds out to us, and we know from the Bible that God is for His people and wants to bless His people with His goodness. The statement I need to just get out of the way, when we speak of biblical blessing, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not like a, uh, you know, if you do certain things, you know, certain formulas, then we're going to get lots of money. That's not what the Bible says is blessing. Money could be a blessing, but God could bless us in many, many, many ways, and money is not the only marker of that. It implies the favor of God. So just keep in the back of your mind that this Psalm 112, uh, for those who are taking note, is an acrostic poem. So in the Hebrew, every line would start with the next letter of the alphabet. So it's Aleph, you know, the A, uh, Bet, and then so forth it goes. Every uh, line, the next letter of the alphabet, and it was a way for people to memorize that song or that hymn uh, using the alphabet letters. So If I'm blessed, or if I want to be blessed, how do I know that I qualify 
for God's blessing. You might say, well, I'd love to be blessed by God. I hope I am, but how can I know that I'm living in God's favor and under God's blessing? Well, it starts off with verse 1, um, giving us the qualifier of who a blessed people are. So it's the people of God, but it describes those people, and it says, blessed are those who fear the Lord and who find great delight in His command. So there's a description. Say, yes, I'm a believer, but the marker of my believing in God and following God is that I fear God, I revere Him, and I find great delight in His commands. So those two words is kind of like opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, fear and delight, but they go hand in hand. It's not a fear of um, being frightened, you know, like a spider jumps out at you kind of fear. It's a revering God, kind of knowing your place, how big and majestic, eternal He is, and how small and temporary my life is, like a breath, and my life is over. I, I know my place, but I also delight in Him. And I thought maybe a good way that as I was reflecting on this psalm um, and fear and delight, those two things going hand in hand, we had a moment like that this past week where my wife and I, last week rather, had a week off and we went up to Calbury. I'm sure many of you have been there or it's on your, your list of things to do. And now in Calbury they have the Skywalk. Who, who's been on the Skywalk? Everyone like that should get like a little pin of bravery that you wear being on the Skywalk. When you look at it in a poster like that and it's like, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, you're a bit fast for me. Go back, back, back. Beck, I'll tell you when to change. I think she wants to like get to the point, Joe. But um, I'll go as fast as I possibly can. But you look at that sky bridge on a postcard, and it like looks easy until you go onto it, and you kind of think, man, that thing is high. It's like really high up there, and as high as it is, so majestic is the view. So you have to embrace that fear to enjoy the view. You get what I'm saying? You have to eat the fear. You have to like say, okay, I'm going to take it. Because when I take it, I get the view. See the, how those two things go together? So, well, me and my wife, she's a bit more brave and, uh, than I am. Because the further I walked on the thing, the more my legs wobble. I think the battery's going on this, so I'm going to just use the handheld, okay? Um, My legs started to wobble. And uh, there's a little uh, bench you can sit on in the middle. I sat there for like five minutes just to, you know, regroup myself and work up the courage to go and to the edge and, and look down. But you know what made it even more delightful? Is the grit underneath has holes in it. It's a grit. So you can look down. So I thought to myself, if I look like that, then I'm okay, but don't look down. So, um, and that's this, this, this thing of Scripture which says that there's a fear that comes with the majesty and glory of God. Think about how Scripture says when people see angels, most of them faint. Now, it's a, what an amazing thing if you could say, I saw an angel. Like, actually, not just in a vision, or, but I actually had one appear. Wow, but you'll also, but yeah, I fainted. 
you'll probably say that as well. You know, they had to pick you up from the floor and give you some sugar water. Because it, it's majestic, but it's also overwhelming. Now, this psalm saying that people of God are blessed because they revere God. They know how great he is, but they also delight in him. Isaiah, the prophet, proclaimed about this dilemma of God's greatness, but delighting in knowing him and seeing him. But he said this, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See how he describes the privilege of seeing God, but also the overwhelming sense of man, it's too much to bear, and he remembers, God, you are great, I am small, but what a delight that the great God would reveal him to the small me. Such a people that know such a God delight in his commands. There in Kalbari, if you walk on the many pathways that, you know, a lot of them have these view, viewing areas. There's signs everywhere that say, don't go past this marker because you might fall off. Now, imagine we walk there and I say to myself, what? What a spoiled sports these people are, making all these rules. Who do they think they are? I want to walk where I want to walk. And I go there and I fall off. You know, potentially could happen. Um, rules aren't there, as in the sense of the Bible, God's commands. It's not there to kind of make life miserable for us, to take the fun out of life. It's there for our blessing. It's there for our protection. You know, if God says, be faithful to your spouse, it's a command. Isn't that a great command? Because it contains blessing. If God says, don't murder, it's not like God saying, well, I know, you know, maybe you like hacking at people, but, you know, no, 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 it's don't do that because you'll end up in jail and you rule other people's life. I'm making light of it, but I want to make the point that commands is not there to, to be heavy and ruin our fun. It's there for our blessing and our benefit. Next time hubby drives on the road and he looks at that, line, the, you know, the, the solid white line in the middle of the road saying, who made these rules to spoil our fun? I want to drive on the other side. You'd probably yank him and say, no, get back on this side because those rules are there to bless us. Therefore, we can delight in them. So now we get to that picture. I wanted to show you what fear and delight looks like in one picture. I don't know if you've seen me smile before. My eyes smile as well. There's no smile in my eyes there. That's a forced grin. And um, I'm not sure if you can see the white knuckles on the edge there. <laughs> I thought just to share the joy with you. Being there, done that, it was fearfully awesome. It was. All right. Getting to the body of the psalm. I'm going to do it in three parts. It's three main points for the rest of the psalm. And it's going to, I'll give you the words. You can make a note of it. It's three words, easy to remember. If we are a people that are blessed by God, God's people that fear Him and take delight in His commands, then we will have these blessings in our life. We'll be like a tree that has enduring shoots, enduring fruit, and enduring roots. Those are the three markers for us as God's people. All right, so here's the first one, enduring shoots. A shoot means, if in the sense of a tree, new life. Isaiah used this same imagery of a shoot of Jesus when he said, Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And it's as if that tree had been cut off and the prophet saw a new shoot come out. 
the stump has a new shoot and says, um, from the, his roots, a branch will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Speaking of Jesus, the Messiah coming forth. So it spoke of David's family tree and this new shoot coming off. Shoot speaks to us of legacy, the footprints that we leave behind. The impression we make on this world, on people, and on Father's Day, we think of the impression we make on our children. And you might have a, a dad that's, you know, in my case, I've got a dad in, in Brisbane. Yours might be in another country. Um, you know, maybe your dad has passed away. It, it could be so many things, but you have father for you. But we remember dads and the footprint they made in our life. But for those who are dads now, we think of the footprints we want to make in the lives of people, our world, and our children. Because verse 2 says of the blessed man, the children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And it, there's a twofold implication here. When it says that you, you know, your, your children will be mighty in the land, it's physical children that they are blessed, but also spiritual children. If I lead others to the Lord, or I'm part of the journey of other people becoming Christ's followers as well, becoming saved, then they become as if spiritual children of my life. And may that be rich in our lives. It says wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. And when we hear in you know, verse 3 where it says wealth and riches are in their houses, yes, we thank God for abundance. You know, when we, if, I, if someone said to me, um, Joe, you're going to experience wealth and riches. I might think, oh, um, okay, M might mean that I'm going to have a, a new car uh, out of the box and lots of money in my bank account and um, you know, lots of things, stuff, glittery things. It, it could be that. But we usually think along those lines when we think from our perspective what wealth and um, blessing means. Wealth and riches. But if you say to God, God, as you look down on us, what do you perceive of wealth and riches in our midst? What to God is wealthy to him. What is richness to him? Jesus spoke about our good deeds, that we should by our good deeds glorify God and by our good deeds store up treasure in heaven. So it's not just the glitz, the dollars. It's being rich towards people and rich towards God. And even if we look at our income and our positions. You know that if um, you earn a little bit more than the minimum wage in the world, you are in the 1% of people in terms of having abundance. Now, that's a quote I heard from another pastor. I was thinking, could that be right? But maybe it's 5% or something. But we are really blessed just by the fact that we earn a good living and we have a house a roof over our head, warm showers. If you have warm water to shower in the morning, you are rich, you are blessed. If you have food for every meal, you are rich, you are blessed compared to many other people around the world. For God, people are a treasure. And so people should be a treasure for us as well. And then it says there that, um, no, that we'll, God is going to give us enduring shoots. That, that's the kind of word. So hang on, did you change slides? I need to check up on you. Sorry. You're like so obedient. All right. There's the slide, the enduring shoots. Okay. 
It speaks of that legacy, you know, our, our children, spiritual children, but also physical children that the Lord could bless us with. Three times in this psalm, the word enduring forever is used. Because there's in verse 3 and 9 that righteousness, the blessed person's righteousness endures forever. And this person will be remembered forever. So it endures. It's an enduring thing. I have a prayer that I, I pray. I, I think it's just about every day. And it's not a rhyme. It's not like a, a, a typed out kind of prayer. It's just a heart's prayer that I pray just about every day. It's for my children. Every day. You know, I, I wake up, one of the first words out of my mouth in a whisper of a prayer. Lord, thank you for a new day. Thank you for my health. Lord, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. And somewhere uh, in my prayers, you know, maybe today I'm going to be praying for specific things in the church or situations in the world or for the government or the schools. There's always details to pray for, but the constant prayer in my life, and I believe in many of yours as well, is for our family, our children. And my prayer is something like this. And I say so that maybe you could tap into it as well. Lord, I pray for my children, I call them each by name, that they would all know you and that they would all walk in your ways, that their names would be forever recorded in your book of life. Lord, I pray for their future spouses, that their future spouses would know you, walk in your ways and have their names recorded in your book of life. And I pray for my children's children and their children and their children, that they all would know you and have their names in your book of life, and that they might call you their God. That's the kind of prayer I'm always praying, that it may be recorded in heaven for my offspring to endure forever. And it's not, it's not a concern like my name. It's not even about the familial and family names. It's that I love my children so much that the greatest thing I could wish and desire for them is eternity with God. And enduring shoots. I'm going to give you a most interesting study. I want to highlight this for you. And it's probably the bigger example in the sermon today. The other's not going to be um, as big. But there was a case study done by an American educator, a man called A.E. Winship, and it was done in the late 1800s. So this is like more than two centuries ago. He did a, it was called a study in education and heredity. Now it sounds a bit heavy, but stay with me. It's quite interesting. He traced the descendants of a certain man, a preacher called Jonathan Edwards, 150 years after his death. So 150 years, he looked at the three, four generations that have come after that man, and he looked at what did it look like when a godly man legacy was passed on to his descendants. His findings are remarkable, especially when you compare those findings to another man on the other side of the spectrum from the same period of time, a man called Max Jukes. Now, Max Jukes is quite uh, well-known in uh, psychological circles when people study the lives of, of criminals, uh, in the career criminals. Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, was a Puritan, a Reformed Puritan, Back in the 1700s, he was one of the most respected preachers in his day, attended Yale at the age of 13, can you believe it, and later went on to become the president of Princeton College. He married his wife Sarah in 1727, and they were blessed with 
11 children and passed on a great godly legacy. Now the next slide. Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes this, and that's on the left side of that tree. One vice president for the United States, one dean of law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. Not everyone reached those big titles, but in his family tree, so many did. An enduring legacy. How may this be explained? Well, some of the Marcus Edwards was a godly man, but he was hardworking as well. He was intelligent and he had morals. Furthermore, it was stated that much of his capacity and talents um, and his intensity of his character of more than one of, of, of the 1,400 offspring is due to his wife, Mrs. Edwards, who was a godly influence in the life of her family. So they traced 1,400 people in his descendants. Now get to the other man, Max Jukes. He came to people's attention, a psychologist, when the, the family tree of 42 different men in prison was looked at. So they, many years after this man, they looked at 42 prisoners, and they traced all of them back to this one man. That's quite intriguing. This Max Jukes lived in New York at about the same period as time as Edwards. The Jukes family was originally studied by a, a socialist, Richard L. Dugdale, in 1877. So it goes way back. But here, here's his offspring. From, in his family, treats noted that there's seven murderers, 60 thieves. And that's like people who had a record to their name. 190 prostitutes. 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, like you know, people that are so poor that they can't uh, care for themselves. 440 of them were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely, like in a young age. These two contrasting legacies provide to us a glimpse, an example of what some might call the five-generation rule. How a parent raises a child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide, all of those things, uh, um, it not only influences their children directly, but up to four generations down the track to follow either the path of good, godliness, or part of evil wickedness. And I was thinking about this, this thing they said, this five generations, and it dawned on me, Scripture speaks of that. Exodus 34, uh, God, uh, 34 verse 6, where God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, and hear this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And I know reading scripture, knowing the nature of God from the 
know, the full complement of Scripture, God is not out to ruin people's life. He's not out to punish people. He's gracious and compassionate and wants people, sinners, to turn back to Him that they might be reconciled with Him. But if we, if we choose our own ways, the way of sin and weakness, then by our free will, He allows us to experience the consequences of that. We should not take away from this as well that godly parents might not have a child or children that choose not to walk with God because they have free will. We should also take away from us that even though I might have a parent that is wicked and in prison and does evil, godly offspring can come from that as well because of free will. God redeems sinners. But whenever someone from such a heredity becomes a Christ follower and walks in God's ways, then I believe it starts a new family tree where God's blessing resides into the thousands and thousands. We fight for our descendants to know God. We fight for it in prayer. We encourage our children. We want to stimulate good thoughts. We exhort them. We cheer them on to find God. But they have free will. We pray fervently and we stand in the gap for them because we love them. The second point, next slide, is enduring fruit. This is what this passage also highlights to us, enduring fruit. In verse 4 it says, Even in darkness light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. So it speaks there of the kind of fruit that God's people bear. You heard the word graciousness in there? Being compassionate and being righteous. Marks of God's people. God's people. And it's in a way, because He's our Father, we become like Him. We've, we've heard the words used before to become more like Jesus. Now, if you have a Bible open and you just cast your eyes to Psalm 111 and you look there at verse 4, it speaks of God's nature, which says the Lord is gracious and compassionate. As it says in this Psalm that we should be gracious and compassionate. In Psalm 111 verse 3, it speaks of God's righteousness that endures forever, as it does in this Psalm speak that our righteousness will endure forever because of being in God's blessing. So we become more like Him. There's three more fruit highlighted in verse 5. It says, Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Now, I'm so glad we're touching on this verse and this aspect because I think it, it can be a bit tricky. Uh, now, how do we deal with being generous and then especially lending freely, especially if you've been burned by doing that? Am I the only one that's experienced that? Gave a friend when I was young, my early 20s, I had this tape. Now, for those, this generation, it's like a CD or, or Spotify, iTunes, all right? I had a cassette and it was like a new one, and I had this buddy, and I, I said, oh, you've got to listen to this, this tape. And I lent it to him because he wanted to listen to it. And then about a month later, I thought, where's my tape? And I said, hey, can I have my, Michal's his name. Michal, if you're listening to this, I still want my tape back. And I, I said, where's my tape? And he said to me, oh, I, I, was, I picked up a hitchhiker, and I felt led by God to bless him with your tape. What? It's like for a moment I thought, well, uh, what do you say about that? I never lent him a tape again. 
And you see, this passage is so good because it says the marks, the fruit we bear is to be generous towards God and people and to our family, to lend freely, but then it ends with this word, capping it off, conducting our affairs with justice. Now, some translations, you know, they translate the Hebrew word for justice with the word, uh, with dis- conducting their affairs with discernment. Both of them means to measure and judge accordingly. So if, if my friend gives my stuff away, when I lend it to him, then by discernment, I won't do that again. If you come to me and say, Joe, we're going to have like a, uh, um, you know, get together on the beach with a bonfire uh, you know, tonight. Can uh, we lend your guitar? Discerningly, I'm going to say no. Because that guitar doesn't go to the beach and bonfires. But my friend Byron, the music producer, he's at times said, can I use your guitar for a recording? I said, yeah, go for it. And I leave it at his place. But I always get it back. I trust him with it. But if you want to go to the beach with my guitar, I'm not going to trust you with it. So that's why you've got to always look at the complete message of Scripture, the balance of Scripture. Because if you use that one little bit in there, oh, if you're godly, you've got to lend freely, so I want to lend your stuff. So what can can I lend to you? Uh, Let's be discerning about that. We ought to have an open hand, not a closed fist, but we ought to be discerning as well. All right. And then the next one speaks about endearing roots. So this is the third one, endearing roots. So we had endearing shoots, endearing fruit, and now the third and last one is endearing roots. In verse 6 it says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. God's people, those who fear God, those who are blessed to know God and walk in His ways, have roots that carry them through hard times, through storms. Even when bad news comes, our hearts are steadfast and secure. When I read that, those words in, in, in that psalm, it says that we are never shaken. I thought, ooh, I've missed that. I've been shaken. Um, you know, there's been time when stuff happened or felt overwhelming to me, and I've been shaken. And now, yet it says that we are never shaken, and I believe that it implies the fact that we are never uprooted. Even you know, Think of Jesus saying that um, the wise man built his house on a rock, and when the storm comes, because they will come, it survives the storm. That's what I think it means. That yes, storms come, we are going to get pounded, we will experience those moments of like, ooh, it's a lot, and it's, it's painful, or it's a, a uphill, but... But we survive it. We are not shaken loose or our foundation is not broken. We are safe in God's hands as God's people. Always and forever. We sang about this earlier, that song says, you're a good, good father. And that's the one thing that makes me realize when I pray, God, let your will be done in my life, your life, decisions you have. God, I pray for your will to be done. How good is it to know that God is a good God, has a good nature, and He wants the best for us. And we can trust Him that His will is the best for us. In Romans 8.38, Paul writes and he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever may come, I'm secure in Him. And the same Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, where he speaks about hardship. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. That's what it means to never be shaken. I cannot be separated from God. I have strong roots that enables me to endure, to bear storms, to survive the winters of the soul, to outlast times of drought in our lives. Because we know that in the end God will bring us through and we are never without hope. And then to close it all off with this message today. Just as a little wrap up. The psalm in verse 1 started with the words, praise the Lord. The Hebrew there is hallelujah. And it's a command. It doesn't say God is worthy of praise or, you know, praise is a nice thing. It says, do this. Praise the Lord. Praise God. It's a command given to us that we should declare his praise, whatever our situation Now, there's a little quote from a devotion that I read. It says, there are times in life when we are placed in a situation that we don't want to be in and that feels out of our control. Whether it's illness, a loss of some kind of, or everything just seems to be going wrong, we each experience trials in our lives and we must decide how we will choose to deal with it. Will we be like the cage sterling that Lawrence Stern wrote about? who in its impatience and frustration fluttered inside a cage crying, I can't get out, I can't get out. Or will we be as the canary, who, although in the very same situation as the starling, chose to make the best of the situation and lifted its voice to the heavens, singing a most joyous melody. We can always do what Psalm 1 starts with, and that is to praise the Lord. And, and, that just means that I, you know, how do I, how do I actually praise God? What, you know, practically, how do I do it? One, you count your blessings. What, what do you have to be thankful for? Yeah, there might be some lack, but what do I have to be thankful for? Count your blessings. Second thing is be thankful for the glass that is half full. Because, yeah, there's half empty in our lives, but let's be, have an attitude of thankfulness. And third one, Scripture tells us to be a people that are content with what we have. Sometimes... You know, we might not have the youth we once had before, but we are content where we are now in our lives. And we can lift it in prayers and in songs unto God. Even just saying to other people, I'm so thankful for what I have, is a way of giving thanks to God. Psalm 112 wraps up by saying to the blessed people, verse 9, They have freely scattered the gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Here it is again enduring forever and their horn will be lifted high in honor now god lifts us up but i believe the ultimate example of being lifted up is when christ the perfect person the only perfect person that ever lived was lifted up to a sinner's cross so that a people like us who are sinful and do not live deserving lives not deserving blessing but deserving judgment that now we can be blessed and we can be accepted by God because Christ stood in the gap for us 
He loved people so much that he gave his life for them on a cross that people might be reconciled to God and that all who want can be called a blessed people of God. Verse 10 says, if we choose not to receive such a gift, if we do not walk in God's ways and do not want to embrace his gift of everlasting life, it says this, the wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. And there's a thing we see in this world where um, people can you know, gather things around them that makes them feel fulfilled, that plaques that hold that longing deep in them. And maybe it's a glitzy car or a nice house or you know, just stuff that we try and fill up in our lives. But none of those things last forever. None of it does. You cannot take anything into you into eternity of this physical world. And that's why it says their longings come to nothing. The things they thought would fulfill them in the end doesn't carry them into eternity. Only what we have in Christ do we carry into eternity. May we all reflect on that on this Father's Day to be a, such a people that fear God, that delight in Him, to live in His blessings. And I'm going to pray for us now. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you would be faithful as you always are to continue to remind us of this in the days ahead. Psalm 112, that we will be such a people called by your name, living in your blessings, bearing fruit, the marks showing that we are people of God. Lord, thank you that we can get to know you more and we revere you. There's a holy fear as we get to know you more, but we also delight in you because you are good. May your goodness fill all of our hearts and all of our minds, all of our homes, all of our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.